is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. This episode's brought to you by Artwork Archive. Artwork Archive is an online platform that makes it easy to manage all aspects of an art career. I know this firsthand because I actually use Artwork Archive to organize and manage my own business. Artwork Archive tracks your artwork, sales, shows, and contacts, automatically builds schedules, and sends you reminders so you're always one step ahead. And for a limited time, Beyond the Studio listeners get 20% off when you get started with their free trial at www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Start connecting with collectors, getting organized, and building your art career now. All right, welcome to this episode of Beyond the Studio, where we're talking with Sarah Hotchkiss, an artist and writer based in San Francisco, California. Sarah, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Would you like to just introduce in your, yourself and your work a little bit further? Um, sure. I, as you said, live in San Francisco. Um, I have primarily a sculptural practice in the studio. I make a lot of things out of wood and paper mache and this thing called paper clay. And then my day job that kind of sustains the studio practice is that I'm I'm the visual arts editor for KQED, which is our local NPR and PBS station. Um, So I'm there four days a week and I either write or edit all of our online content about the visual arts and film. So we cover the Bay Area art scene in reviews and interviews and kind of long form investigative stories more recently. But we try to give Mm -hmm. the general audience like a very representative picture of what's happening in the Bay Area art scene. Yeah. And are you from San Francisco originally? I am not. I grew up in Altadena and Pasadena down in Los Angeles, California, Mm -hmm. but I have been here since 2009. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your creative journey thus far? Like what brought you up here to the Bay um, and how you found yourself as a visual artist here and also a writer? I moved to San Francisco to go to grad school. So I was living in Brooklyn Um, working in a gallery after college and I got a little sick of you know holding up things at art fairs and trying to find things in the storeroom that matched people's carpets and couches Um, and I wanted to make my own work so I applied to a bunch of grad programs and I got into California College of the Arts which is out here I never visited the campus I had this moment of panic where I sent in the deposit and I was like, oh, wait, what if it's not real? <laughs> and so I did a, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and 
like I knew in my mind and in my heart that it was real, but it was just this weird moment of panic where I did a Google Street View to find out if the address that I had sent the check actually existed and looked like a school. Oh no, like it was just some long con that someone very, 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 had you apply and... Yeah, exactly. Some very, very long con that in, involved a website and like pictures of students <laughs> and their work. Um, but <laughs> oh no. ultimately, I was satisfied. Turns out it's a very real and reputable school yeah. <laughs> in a great place. It worked out. So I came out here for that and I had every intention, probably up until the end of the first year maybe, that I would return to New York because that in my mind was the epicenter of of being a t- contemporary artist and where the things were happening. And then I ended up staying uh, for various reasons, which involved getting an internship, getting a job, having a really great community around me. And now I've been here for 10 years. It's so crazy how fast that can all happen. It went by really fast. I think I'm a, I'm close to, I think next year will be the 10 year mark for my being in Baltimore. And it, it feels like it all happened so fast. And it was a, a similar situation. I came here for school and then I was like, oh, this is, this is where I want to be. This is the right place for me. Yeah, I feel like having that network um, from school is so helpful just in building up your own career and having a sense of community. Um, I know that for me in Baltimore, that's where a lot of that came from too. Do you feel like that is how things started to happen more organically for you, like having that community through graduate school? Yeah, I had this strange sentiment in grad school where I was like, I'm here to work. And I would come in the morning, go to classes, spend my time in the studio, and then at the end of the day or like at the end of the very, very late night, I would return home. So I was not really socializing with my classmates a lot in grad school. I kind of had this mentality like, we'll be friends later. There'll be time for friendships later. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Which means I was pretty lonely. Um, I had good housemates, but uh, grad school was not like the most social time for me. But then it, it did turn out that I had made connections without meaning to. And, and there was a really great community that came out of my grad school class that once I was freed up in terms of time, I got to hang out with and socialize with and go to openings with. And it was really, yeah, it's amazing to know almost everyone at an opening, which if you've spent any time in San Francisco, you know happens over and over and over again. It just turns into this circle of people that you end up seeing every weekend because it is such a small city and such a small scene at times. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like that started to lead to opportunities for you career-wise or either to show your work or like professional connections as well? Definitely. I, the whole reason that I have the job that I have now at KQED is because of a classmate at CCA. So as soon as I graduated, I kind of did a few very odd jobs before I landed an almost full-time position as a registrar in an art storage warehouse. But for those few months where I was pretty much unemployed, I reached out to a friend who was at the time the arts editor at KQED and he really had gotten that entire online section of the station going, saying we need to have arts coverage in the Bay Area, and this is going to be the venue where that happens. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to him, and I was like, hey, I have a lot of free time and would love to do some writing. 
do you think I could write reviews for you? Um, so for, you know, gosh, so that was like 2011 until 2015, I was writing three to four reviews a month for KQED and then other Bay Area publications once I got going. But it was really him saying, sure, I can supply you with that platform and then give you some tips and tell you what works and what doesn't or what pitches are good and what pitches aren't um, that really yeah. like directly put me where I am now. Yeah, to have that mentorship is pretty amazing. Had you been doing any or a lot of writing up to that point or was this really the first opportunity to kind of engage with the art scene in a different way and be learning on the job? Yeah, I studied English literature in undergrad, so I did a lot of writing then. Oh, okay, yeah. But it was mostly, you know, essays about 18th century literature. And then my senior year of college, I was a managing editor for our kind of alt-weekly newspaper, which positioned itself as kind of the fun, cool opposite of the daily campus newspaper. And in that role, I did a lot of editing. There were like many, many, many late nights fueled by PBR and coffee. And we would like put the paper to print (laughs) at 7 (laughs) a.m. the following day and then like sleep for the rest of the day to try to make up for it. Yeah, that was exciting, learning how to be an editor. But not a lot of really no art criticism and no art writing until... Grad school, I took a few classes within CCA's Visual and Critical Studies Department, which is much more about, you know, writing critical arguments about art. And then we have to write a thesis at CCA. So while you're Mm -hmm. preparing for your MFA show, you're also trying to put words to your practice, or in my case, you decide you don't want to write about your practice at all and you just write an entire paper about time capsules. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) That was fun for me. Um, And it was like peripherally kind of related, but I mostly was like, Uh I don't have the language or like the headspace to both make this thing and put words to it. So I'd rather put words to these other existing things and kind of organize them into a a capsule um, and then just make the work that I want to make without overanalyzing it too much. Yeah. How would you describe the relationship between your work as a visual artist and a writer today? I think it's much more of a happy relationship. I tried for a very long time to keep them super separate. And part of that is because, you know, it's hard to, to wear both those hats. Like, as a critic, you are tasked with, you know, writing reviews and thinking critically about other people's art. And the galleries in the Bay Area enjoy having people write about their art. And then as an artist, you want to be everyone's friend and (laughs) have your art be considered by those galleries to show it. So, you know, I, I think a lot about conflict of interest and you know, when I'm too close to someone or something, if it's an institution, to write about it, if I need to get someone else to write about it, if I need to have someone else edit it even. But I'm starting to realize that I am one person and that all these things that I do are part of how I engage with the local art scene and and that I can be both a writer and an artist and kind of it's all part of one long game to mm-hmm. to sustain the Bay Area arts community. 
Do you feel that having to sort of wear these different hats of engaging with the Bay Area arts community as both an artist and a writer and just an active participant, do you feel like that's kind of given you a broader perspective of the Bay Area um, art scene as a whole? Sure. I mean, I still think I'm very young and, and, and still learning how to do my various jobs, but I've worked in a lot of different institutions and been part of different art scenes at different levels. Like in Brooklyn, I was very much in a, a small kind of almost family-run art space where we did everything ourselves, but we represented some pretty amazing emerging and mid-career artists, and I got to see what it looks like when there's a really healthy relationship between a gallery and an artist and what mm-hmm. that kind of respectful, paid-in-a-timely-manner type relationship can be, as opposed to all the horror stories that you mostly hear. And then here in the Bay Area, I've, you know, I've worked on the art storage and shipping side, which is always good skills to have. Yeah, I'm sure. But also <laughs> can be like very how the sausage is made in a kind of terrifying way. <laughs> and then I've also worked in like a very small nonprofit institution where I was the communications director. And so that was kind of like the gallery days, but you're working within a different kind of monetary framework and a different mission statement and you get to see what it's like when artists have the money and the support to do things not necessarily towards a a commercial goal Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that it's not necessarily (laughs) the fact that I've been covering the arts in like a journalism capacity that gives me any sort of insight and I wouldn't pretend to have like an all-seeing all-knowing perspective on what's going on especially in terms of like the huge amount of history that is here like I'm always learning more about the Bay Area in general and then the Bay Area art scene in particular's history is just like this rich incredible never-ending treasure trove of information and lessons probably for the future um but I think that it's like knowing all these different sides as much as you can that that informs a lot of how I try to approach stories. Like I'm writing a piece right now about um, a group that's recently formed called the Women Art Handlers, and they're really trying to organize and Skillshare and make this field more accessible, a field that's like still largely dominated by men. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the knowledge that exists within that field is really closely held and tightly guarded. And I, you know, I've mm-hmm. done work as an art handler and I know what it's like to try to get those freelance gigs and how intimidating it can be to have someone who's like physically much bigger than you tell you that you can't lift something when in a safe workplace, everyone should be able to lift everything. So that's yeah. my answer to whatever the question was. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I think that was really insightful and just having been involved in so many different facets of the art world in general, but here in particular, does really give you a unique perspective and ability to work, um, to, to do the work that you do. Can you talk a little bit about your own experience working with galleries and with showing your work? Yeah, I really haven't had any commercial gallery shows. I mean, maybe I've been in some group shows at commercial galleries, but for the most part, I've showed with like small artist-run or nonprofit spaces. And I was thinking about that actually last night. I was like, hmm, I wonder if this is how it will always be. 
And then I thought, I don't really care. That sounds kind of great. So, uh, yeah, they don't have to be commercial galleries. There's all kinds of art spaces. And I think it's interesting how you've been able to carve out spaces for your work. And so just maybe hearing about that process and how you have found the spaces that are best suited to show the work or be able to do the projects that you want to do. I think there's two ways that I've seen things happen. One has come out of residencies and the friendships and the connections I've made in those places. Um, I've done, I think I've done kind of in the grand scheme of things, a lot of residencies when I talk to some of my friends. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah. And the first one I did, I actually, it was the Vermont Studio Center in 2008. And I made all the work that I used to apply to grad school there which was amazing. Wow. Because I was working full-time at the gallery in Brooklyn and I had like a tiny room with a tiny desk and I was really limited in terms of time and energy and space in what I could produce. And then I had four Mm -hmm. weeks of unlimited cookies, essentially. They just have so many cookies there. And that fueled (laughs) (laughs) everything. They have really good food. It's true. And then I met all these amazing people there who I'm still connected to. And I've watched them go on to start different projects and art spaces and go to grad school themselves. And it's been really amazing to have that network. You guys interviewed Cindy Chang and we met at the Vermont Studio Center. Oh, that's awesome. What? (laughs) I I love that. I had asked a friend of mine, um, because I have two friends, after I saw that you had done a residency in Wasaic, I had asked a couple friends of mine, I was like, do you know this person? Did you guys overlap at all? One was the year before yours and one was the year after yours. <laughs> I was like, well, that's okay. But I, I would love to hear more about uh, your residency experience and kind of what you've gained from, from doing those and, and if you have any recommendations for artists interested in pursuing residencies. Vermont Studio Center is like my number one suggestion to almost everyone in terms of like quote-unquote starter residency because they've got it down like they're kind of an ongoing cycle they know how to create space for artists they feed you really well they take care of everything it's like it's so dreamy it's not like luxurious per se but everything you need to get it's like adult summer camp. Exactly. <laughs> I mean and that's kind of what all residencies are you're like I can't believe this is my life right now they're feeding me and taking care of me and I don't have to think about any of these things that I usually worry about. And then there's different levels of like, you know, comfort or, you know, you had to make your own food with Saic and the grocery store was not very close as opposed to places like Acre, which is in Steuben, Wisconsin, right outside of Chicago, where that was probably the best food I've ever had for a sustained period of time like I cannot replicate the quality of food in my own life that they served there it was so good Um, (laughs) and that's another one that that's more accessible in terms of how many people they have going through there they're shorter um, residency periods I think it's like 10 days to two weeks Mm -hmm. and it's also very affordable so I think it's maybe $600 for two weeks there, at least when I attended. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do have a lot of scholarships. So if you need support, they have work study available or they can give you a partial scholarship. If you're not in the Chicago area, you do have to get out there. But sometimes right. that 
can be worth it. And then you have this whole new group of people that you met who are based in Chicago that may turn into opportunities in Chicago. Like that did happen for me, which was great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, returning to like the original, original question of how these shows have happened, a lot of them have come out of friendships and connections and studio visits that happened during residencies. And I totally acknowledge that this is like an extreme privilege to be able to even go to a residency and take time off work. I just use all my vacation time usually (laughs) to go to a residency if I have it and if I get in somewhere. Yeah, I imagine it can be difficult to like if you're managing a typical nine to five or just a day job in general, finding time to be able to do these residencies or I mean, just finding time to be in the studio in general uh, can be really difficult. How do you manage between being the the writer and the visual artist time-wise? Like, do you try to double up and, and work on both things in the same days or, or kind of have set times to do each project? <laughs> I am a studio person on the weekends, so... I work at KQED four days a week, Monday through Thursday, Mm -hmm. and then Friday through Sunday are my studio days, which is already one more day than most people get, which is very nice for me. (laughs) And did you intentionally set it up in that way so that you would have those uninterrupted days in the studio, or is that just sort of how things have worked out? Yeah, I, um, I started at KQED only three days a week, which was an... I knew it at the time, like the best it was ever going to be. I was making enough to pay my rent and my studio rent. And I had a four day weekend for studio time, which I would usually split up into, you know, like three days in the studio, one day of true weekend where I was doing laundry or reading a book or going to the flea market or hanging out with friends. Yeah, Yeah. having a life. Having a life. (laughs) Being Um, human. (laughs) Totally. And then some things shifted at work and, and, We needed to kind of restructure. I was asked to step into a full-time role, and I didn't want it. I was like, I really want less responsibility, not more responsibility. And I think if I take this full-time job, I will not last longer than a year. I'll have to quit. And so the compromise was for me to work four days a week and continue to have a three-day studio weekend. Yeah. That's interesting. So did you make that decision with your studio work in mind? Yeah, definitely. And it, the offer came kind of right at the end of 2017 when I, I had had a really big art year. I got a commission from the San Francisco Arts Commission. It's kind of redundant, but um, <laughs> they have a series where you get to design uh, posters for the bus kiosks along Market Street. And so that was a major project for me that took a huge amount of time and I was doing a lot of research in various archives in the city but it was also like an extremely successful art year for me I just had all these things happening and all this all this time and energy that I needed to put into art projects and so I was very very reticent to say yes to a full-time position at KQED because I thought what if next year this continues in this vein and I and I suddenly don't have time for my art and like, yeah, money is great, but if I can pay my rent, that's really all I want or need right now. And like, I'm in a very secure rental yeah. position where I have rent control and I don't have any dependents. And I'm very lucky to, to be able to say no thanks to the big job. 
um, and to prioritize my art. Yeah, I'm sure that's probably difficult at times. Like just saying no in general can be really hard and learning like your own boundaries and what you need time-wise to put into your practice and also just time to be a human being. I feel like it's so easy to unintentionally kind of take on more than you can handle and you're like, cool, I'm burning out. This is not what I intended. Yeah, it's easy to overcommit yourself. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking. I mean, my immediate reaction was, oh no, I don't want this job. But they were like, take some time, take the weekend, think about it. And I, you know, I talked to all the people in my life. I talked to my parents. And it's it's also hard because capitalism tells us that you should be always seeking the raise and more responsibility and this higher paying gig and, and the bigger title within this corporate structure. And that's when being an artist kind of <laughs> comes into conflict with the day job because it's like, well, I should be doing this, but but who's telling me I should? And am I really going to be happy? And am I going to be making what I want to make? Or am I going to have the time to make what I want to make? So this has been the year of the happy medium, I guess. It's still not the, the dreamy state that I was in where I was working three days a week, but I have put more into saving and I did join a gym. So that was nice hey. to be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think it comes back to just having clarity about what you want your own life to look like and what success looks like for you and being able to define that for yourself so that you can make decisions around that, which is really hard because there are all these external pressures and definitions that I think it'd be easy to get swept up in and just to continue to say yes to things that look like opportunities, but they're not really serving your real goal or or your work as an artist. I feel like that's come up a lot in conversations, but it still rings true. And so it's always, I think, inspiring to hear people who've been able to really implement that in their own life and have set their lives up in a way that supports the work that they really want to be doing. Because, I I mean, I feel that every day I stepped away from a full-time job on a sort of different career path in coming out here. The goal of wanting to focus more on my studio work and been trying to find that balance where, you know, I have my my needs covered, but I'm able to spend more time in the studio and feel like there's always a compromise somewhere. And so um, I've been trying to say no to more things and kind of limit the, the work that I take on that's not part of my studio work. So are you actively applying to opportunities like residencies to be able to set things up for the future or are you kind of taking opportunities as they come along right now i have a a list of or (laughs) i have a gmail inbox filled with things that are labeled art to do do this um (laughs) and i i might look organized to the outside world simply because i publish things online but I, I am one of those people who, like, finds out the due date of a thing. I write that down, and then I wait till the last possible moment to work on the thing that's due on that date. Whereas I know many people, my boyfriend oh, included. Yeah, <laughs> it's all relatable. Who, when he, I know. It's like, that to me is normal. How else do you know that you put, you know, everything into it that you could because you were working down to the very last minute? I like your thinking. <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes oh, I didn't think about that. Maybe it's some weird like marker of 
accomplishment feeling like, oh, you really worked right up till the end, but really it's just you waited till the end. Yeah, these are the stories that I tell myself. So yeah, I have a number of things that I'm planning to apply to that include, you know, weirdo opportunities to like do a research project for an online publication or the SF Arts Commission has a call open right now for individual artist grants and those are kind of like the golden ticket to do a very self-directed major project. I think it's like $10,000. Don't quote me on that, but it's a significant amount of money that you get to set. Yeah. We have a very well-funded arts commission. Everyone should be applying to everything that they put up open calls for all the time. The thing is, you have to be a San Francisco resident. No, it's interesting to hear about too, though, because I think part of what we are hoping to tap into a little more is the locality of working in specific areas. And I'm really interested in the Bay Area in particular, not only because I live here, but because I think it presents really interesting challenges and opportunities for artists. On the one hand, there's a lot that happens here. There's so many communities within San Francisco, but also East Bay and I mean, the greater Bay Area as a whole has so much to offer. But there are immense challenges that artists face because it is so expensive. And maybe it is so expansive because it's just kind of continued to push people out of the small city center that's here. But I think we're interested to talk with people who are making it work here about what that looks like. And of course, it's going to be different for everybody. But through conversations and through sharing artists stories to help paint a little bit of a picture of what it looks like and just to share different perspectives of what kinds of challenges and opportunities there are um, in these different areas. So I appreciate the honesty there. And I know we've kind of touched on a little bit what your connection has been to the Bay Area. But I think as someone who's really involved in a lot of different facets, um, it is really helpful to hear your perspective. What kind of projects are you working on right now? Or what are your your next goals with your creative career? Great question. (laughs) Yeah, I have just packed all of the art for a two-person show that is opening on October 27th at Royal Nonsuch Gallery in Oakland, Mm -hmm. which is a really rare instance of me being like ahead of the curve. I have never been done and ready to install this far in advance of a show. And it has made me feel like, oh no, what what did I forget? What am I missing? (laughs) What did I, I did something wrong. but I think I just have been working on this for a year and it's done. Yeah. Or it will be done as soon as we install. So that, yeah. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. It's been really fun to work on. Um, the other artist in the show is named Stephanie Rolfs and it's called You're Weird for Building This. Oh, I love and it. And the whole, <laughs> the whole show is organized around um, the idea of these kind of animal enrichment devices that we put into pet and zoo animal cages to try to make them less oppressed in their environments essentially and so there's a lot of like human-sized bird toys and extra large cat toys and fascinator objects and things that we have made in response to like google image searches for pet toys oh my god 
I wish I lived in the it's area. Is it pet it. friendly? Can you bring your pets there? So unfortunately, I feel like pets would destroy the show, but it's human friendly. <laughs> so I'll come, but I'll leave my dog, Remy, at home. I can't bring in birds to play with the giant toys. <laughs> I would love to do a photo shoot when we install with some birds. And I've been thinking of asking some friends I know who have birds if they can bring them into the gallery and we can like include them with the art. That would be my dream. But we'll see if that comes to fruition. Do you have any learning experiences that you've gone through with your art making that, be it positive or negative, really impacted the way that you do your work or the way that you kind of manage your time or or any connection to it? (laughs) I have learned, let's see, what am I, seven years out of grad school, (laughs) that I really work best with assignments. So I can go to the studio and just kind of, you know, do some stuff. But unless I have like a show or a deadline or a project that I definitely know that I'm working on, it's not quality studio time. It's more like dicking around studio time. So I have learned to set up assignments for myself. If there aren't external assignments working on me, I need to make my own. And that mostly comes from applying to things or knowing that there's a deadline for a certain residency that I applied to last year and I don't have any new work to show in the application process, so I better make something new so they think I'm a real artist. (laughs) And that kind of, you know, like internal rulemaking really helps me. Yeah. Have there been any other really pivotal experiences you can think of in your work life that have kind of altered the course of your work or career? Ooh, uh, I'll just say not yet. I don't know. I feel <laughs> like I am still so early in my art career. And I really believe or want to be making art like well into my 80s slash the end of my life, whenever that is. Okay, well, I'll give you like the the kind of go team answer first and then maybe have a real answer, which is um, it's really hard when you're in grad school, especially. I don't know about your experiences, but CCA had a lot of awards and like there would be these times of year where certain things would happen. Then all of a sudden, you know, five members of your class would get an award and it would really feel if you weren't the one receiving any of those awards or any of that recognition that you were failing as an artist in the context of this grad program. When we left, and now that I'm seven years out, I have finally realized that like, that's just two years of a lifetime, hopefully, of making art. And it means nothing in terms of how much you get out of the work or or where you want it to be or where you want it to be shown if someone gets this $5,000 award or this, you know, Murphy Cadigan, whatever show that felt like so important and so pivotal to like whether or not you were going to make it as an artist when you were a baby grad student. So that's like the lesson that I've learned over the past seven years. And then the importance of saying no is a good one. Also the importance of saying yes. (laughs) So you you have to go with your gut, but I had this insane opportunity land in my lap, pretty much, um, where a woman that had been in the curatorial program at CCA, her name is Arden Sherman, and she now works for the Hunter East Harlem Gallery in New York. She Mm -hmm. called me up in like late 
September and said, hey, I'm curating a show about dominoes and I have this giant wall that I need to hang art on and the person we were going to commission to make this work fell through and the opening is three weeks from now. Do you think that you could (laughs) make a thing for this show about dominoes in New York in two weeks? And I was like, uh, yes, I can do that. (laughs) Even though I had no idea, you know, what I would do, how it would work, if I would go crazy, if I could even get the time off work to fly to New York and install a thing on a 18 foot wide wall. And so that was really amazing because I learned that I could do all those things. Um, and I was like very happy with what I made and it was a super fun, crazy, stressful, but ultimately very rewarding experience. And so sometimes you have to say yes to really crazy things and stretch your art muscles. Yeah, I like, I feel like there are a lot of important lessons there to what you were first saying, just about recognizing or taking a longer perspective over your work and career. I'm sure kind of realizing that early through the sort of rejection of not getting certain awards in graduate school has been really helpful because I mean, how, how many things would you say you're applying to on a regular basis, um, whether it's like residencies or, sh- or, I don't know, shows or fellowships, projects? Yeah, I mean, I maybe apply to f- like three to five things. Yeah, five would be a good year. But yeah, I don't, you yeah. don't get any of <laughs> you, you apply yeah. to the same things over and over. Like how, how many thousands of dollars have I given to the headlands over the years? <laughs> um, in order to not be a resident there. <laughs> right. You, you've probably paid for a residency. <laughs> but I feel like that's so normal and that's just a part of the process. Like every artist experiences that. So it's helpful to hear because, I mean, I apply to things all the time and I maybe it's, you know, like 5% of the things that work out or I've applied to things multiple times before they have worked out. And I don't know if you're not really mentally prepared for that rejection being really built into the process, it can be kind of hard to take and also to realize that it's not an indication of your work or success and that there's such a a long game that you're involved in that because you didn't get a thing at a point in time doesn't mean that one, it's never going to work out or two, that it's the right thing. And then, you know, meanwhile, you can have this really kind of unexpected opportunity arise where you fly to New York in two weeks and do a crazy installation and maybe that leads to things that you could never have sort of planned for so it's all these things kind of happening simultaneously and I don't know I feel like as long as you're doing all of that and moving your work forward and putting yourself out there and being willing to take those things on it it all kind of goes together and you are making progress, even if it's not the thing that you expected or hoped would work out. And it kind of comes about in a different way. Yeah, I think that all just like summed up is you have to decide what your own version of success is, which is something you said. Um, (laughs) And you can't judge yourself by other people's standards or what you see other people doing. It has to be your own path. And maybe it's a totally different and way more interesting one than the one you thought you were going to take. Yeah, I feel like that idea is a big reason why we wanted to start doing this podcast in the first place, because it's so easy to get caught in this sort of uh, 
comparison mentality where you're seeing what other artists are doing or other makers are doing and and you're thinking like, okay, they're going to these residencies or they have all these people following them online or they're getting into these huge galleries or doing these big shows and it, it can be really frustrating and you end up kind of selling yourself short because you're just comparing yourself to someone else's highlight reel when in actuality they're probably dealing with a lot of the same shit that we all are. Right. Who are they comparing themselves to that you don't even know about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's always someone ahead. Um, beyond the show that you have coming up uh, at the end of this month, do you have anything else that you're working towards um, or any longer term goals that you're preparing for? I started working on a project and I don't know what it's going to be. And this is maybe the first time I've given myself an assignment and I have no idea what the outcome will be or, or when the outcome will be. But when I was working on those posters for the Market Street project, I got really interested in these magazines that were published in 1967. And that led into the discovery of this whole chain of magazines that was published beginning in 1984 that had different names over the years, but it was High Frontiers, Reality Hackers, and then Mondo 2000. And it kind of created this whole genre, or at least captured the genre of cyberpunk in the 80s and 90s, and like imagined that it was being published 10 years in the future, which was a very fascinating principle. But then when the internet came into being, it kind of just fizzled out and ceased to exist. So it's like the magazine was replaced by the internet in a way, and it bridged this real counterculture energy into cyber culture. And so I did a two-week-long residency this year at a spot in Point Arena called This Will Take Time, which is just a couple's house in the middle of a field. It's totally beautiful, and you just live there and do what you need to do. And I spent that whole time reading back issues of these magazines and trying to figure out what it was that I liked about them, what I didn't like about them, what I wanted to pull out of them and um, I didn't get very far into the archive it's like very difficult to read about people's acid trips for that long (laughs) (laughs) which is what a lot of the first few issues were Um, they were like very druggy and very pro LSD Um, awesome sounds great yeah (laughs) Uh, and then they get into more interesting kind of mind-altering stuff like proto vr headsets with goggles that flash colors in front of your eyes and play nice sounds in your ears but anyway long story short i have now like 48 pages of notes on eight issues of these weirdo magazines oh my god and yeah (laughs) it's like i'm either writing a dissertation or it's I don't know what it's going to be. And it's it's hard to now find that time again because it was such a concentrated period of like, I'm only working on this and I don't have to go to work and all I have to do is feed myself and sleep and read these magazines. So now that this show is up or will be up, I think that's what I'm going to work on next and hopefully figure out what it is and why I'm into (laughs) it. So yeah. Mondo 2000. And now that everyone's hearing this, they're going to be like, oh, I want to do that too. And they'll probably figure it out before I can. But uh, 
Oh, no. Everyone should check them out. They're weird. <laughs> or they'll just be interested in the project and they'll follow along to see that's a very, where it leads you. That's an optimistic view. Yeah. 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 I hope so. Yeah. Hopefully we don't have any listeners um, out there stealing our artist ideas. This isn't even an idea. It's like, <laughs> there's this thing and it's weird and cool. Yeah. How did you Sounds discover like that? everything um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there must have been a mention, you know, I can't even remember now, but it was something... Some magazine that I was looking at from 67 must have had a person who went on to become involved in this. And what's interesting is that you can kind of see the way that magazine publishing developed. Like, it starts out very much a zine, and then as they get computer software and, like, layout skills, it gets more and more complicated and maybe sophisticated, but then it also gets like really messy and full of images with white text overlaid and like Mm -hmm. 10 different fonts per issue. It's like very 90s in a way that's fascinating to me right now. And I think like this is tapping into something that I've noticed in culture at large is like the internet has become this thing that is so terrible for so many reasons that we've We've started looking back at the beginning of it and the ideas that shaped it and formed it to try to understand what went wrong when, because there was so much optimism and hope for this online community and what it would create, what this like collective brain power could do if we were able to freely share information on it. And instead we get trolls and truthers and doxing and just awful, yep. horrible, hateful rhetoric. Yep. So I think it's in the air like this idea of like what what was right before the internet or what was the early internet and how can we get back to that in some way i did a bit of research while i was up in point arena about the advent of the personal computer and how it was also really tied up with a lot of idealism and ideas about how we would be connected to each other and how we wouldn't have to turn to these like supercomputers locked in rooms to process our information that everyone would have the capability to do these high level computing things whatever it is you needed to do at your own fingertips and that was also really tied up with these guys who were just like dropping acid all the time and like coming up with these wacky ideas and at the same time being becoming aware of like what the companies and the institutions they were working for were doing in terms of like the Vietnam War and the technologies that they were supporting in the defense systems of the United States. So you see a lot of that happening now with companies like Google and even Salesforce employees saying, hey, I feel like our skills are being used for evil and we want to know more about what this technology is feeding into. Yeah. So... In another mm-hmm. life, I'm a, I'm a tech journalist, but I'm not. I'm just an arts writer. Yeah, San Francisco's a city, especially, I think, good for that. Those two topics. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfectly suited for you. Does a lot of your work start out very research-based? Um, like, are you usually doing a lot of writing in preparation for projects? I think that the source material determines how I respond to it. So mm-hmm. the show that we're working on for the end of October it's just all visual source material it's like videos of elephants at the zoo playing with balls or like these bizarro frozen fish cakes that they give to otters on their birthday or these like bamboo things they make for pandas on their birthday at the zoo oh my god which are like so for human 
consumption, like visual consumption, but it's like the special moment for the animal. And then when it comes to like Mondo 2000, the material is all for the most part written with like a few really amazing graphic design mm-hmm. elements. So I'm like grabbing those elements and saving them and and figuring out how to use them, but for the most part I respond in text. It's like me just kind of doing a running commentary as I read with a lot of like WTF. Oh my god, I can't believe they said this about the AIDS crisis. This is so wrong. Type note taking it's really crazy. When I was working on the posters for Market Street, that was mostly like grabbing images because I knew that the final output would be visual. And so a lot of, and this is where kind of way back at the beginning of this conversation when you asked me about like being an artist and an arts writer, I feel really lucky in that I have these different venues. So if something works better as an essay or as like an investigative piece or you know, a, hey, did you know this thing about Bay Area art history? I, I can write that article and publish mm-hmm. it on KQED. And I'm very lucky in that my editor uh, really lets me write about whatever I want to. And he's like, cool, you're jazzed on these magazines. Let's have you write an article about these magazines. But then I am also an artist and I get to make visual representations of whatever it is I'm interested in too. So I think that's where I am on the Mondo project right now is like, (laughs) is this going to be written? Is it going to be visual? Is it something else? Is it, who knows, a thing I haven't, a form I haven't discovered yet that that's 10 years in the future? I don't know. Yeah, it sounds very fluid for you and that you found a way to to set up your your day job in a way that informs or reinforces your work as an artist and vice versa and that you're able to move between those different modes of thinking and that they all have kind of equal opportunity to come out in the manifestation of different projects. And I feel like that's what we're all striving for to a certain extent as artists with, I guess, the exception of people who make a very conscious effort to separate their work as an artist with their day job. But I feel like for a lot of people trying to integrate those two together so that they reinforce each other is the goal and it seems like you've really been able to do that i hope so it's a work in progress always was there anything that we hadn't touched on within your work life or career that we should ask about sarah i mean i guess i didn't talk super much about like the importance of criticism but i also don't know if i have any good answers for that it's definitely something that i've been thinking about a lot lately because I mean, this has been the case for a while, but there are so few venues for art writing in the Bay Area specifically, in a place that historically had so much writing, like art forums started here. There's no way to have a healthy arts ecosystem without a lot of art writing and people thinking critically and reading that writing about the art scene. And so mm-hmm. it, um, I feel so lucky and privileged to have my job, but I also feel... A lot of responsibility to cover as much as possible and it's just it's just there's too much going on which is great that there's so much going on but I yeah if there's one thing I could wish into being it would be like five to ten additional outlets for art criticism in the Bay Area and even beyond Mm -hmm. that like interviews and features and arts journalism and I think podcasts have kind of filled some of that gap 
like Congratulations Pine Tree and Kunstkapades and Art Practical has a whole suite of podcasts now. Mm-hmm. But there is something about the written word and being able to share that and comment upon it in a way that is a slightly less ephemeral version of audio, I guess. Yeah. But I've been thinking about that a lot and how how I can remedy or I don't know. It's like a big question. It feels like losing artists to different cities and losing jobs within institutions and the high price of everything. It's just kind of all like the art scene is being sucked away and the lack of writing is like part of that and also a symptom of it. Mm -hmm. I had not really thought of it in that way, but I am now thinking more of the connections between artist communities. Like within here in Baltimore, like the more I see more art blogs and art magazines or even just zines in general, the more I'm seeing artist communities. And I guess it's just people are having more conversations about art, which is very inspiring to make more art and put it out there. Yeah. And I think it's a sign of a healthy arts ecosystem, which is like a term that comes from, I mean, lots of people use it, but there's this very famous poster that Rennie Pritikin made called Facets of a Healthy Art Scene or Prescription for a Healthy Art Scene. It has two different versions. And it's like a point, it's like a itemized list of all the things that are necessary to create a healthy art scene. And I kind of live by that list. Like I occupy various facets of it and I think everyone who's involved should, like you should be a creator and an observer and uh, someone who supports others and, and someone who, you know, gets supported by that scene in turn. So when we start seeing any of those items disappearing, it's kind of a slippery slope. I want more, more of everything. Yeah. Yeah. There shouldn't just be like one critic at the Chronicle and that's like, there need to be more voices yeah. because there's, there is a lot happening here. Yeah. It's also just so unhealthy to only have one voice out there that's suggesting that this one person has the or, you know, this one publication, whatever, has the the final say on what's going on when there are so many different communities within the overall art community and different different things going on within your city. Like I am very much involved in the craft community in my city, but I'm not as involved in the fine art community, but being a part of a community makes such a big difference and having these conversations and people sharing about what's going on within that community makes a big difference. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we were so excited to talk with you, Sarah, is because you are involved in so many different facets of the art world and you're so engaged with the arts community at large. And I think there's something to take away here too for many artists that it comes back to that sense of personal responsibility and being willing to sort of step up and take those things on. And I think even what you said very early about how you eventually stepped into the role as visual arts editor for KQED is that you sort of volunteered yourself uh, and you reached out and kind of took the first step and were really proactive about expanding your involvement in that way and that's so important and I think that there's something there for all artists to take away that if we want to see these things happen and grow then we have to be the ones to to take that step and sometimes kind of take matters into our own hands and 
just involve being willing to involve ourselves in different ways. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my biggest takeaways from doing all these jobs and being in these different roles is that audience really matters and showing up at people's openings at their events and then providing feedback that isn't just the pat like great job congratulations but like you know if you go to a museum and there's an event that moves you tell them like reach out to the person that organized it and tell them that it mattered to you or if you think something could have been done better tell them the participation on your end has to be more than just showing up it has to be providing feedback in order for things to grow and change and so I think that a lot of art is passively consumed but if we want people to know that we value it we have to be more vocal and uh, I wanted to say with that list you mentioned before we can share that on our website and try to encourage more people to to see what we're talking about on the episode and where can people find your work online? I have a website. It is sarahhotchkiss.com. And then all day long while I'm editing at work and finding typos in my own work and others, I tweet about it at sahotchkiss. That's Twitter. I don't know. It could be amusing for some people who are trying to learn how to spell things <laughs> like me. <laughs> Perfect. And then, yeah, all my writing is on kqed.org slash arts. Perfect. Sarah, thank you so much. It's been really great to talk to you today. We're so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of our episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. Oh yeah, you're fine. I have, I have water, I have a beer sitting here, all the things. <laughs> I wish I had a beer. Me too. I'm sorry, I should have gotten some for all of us. My mistake. Oh, Amanda. Through the computer. Jeez. Oh, if I could share my beer digitally with you, I absolutely would. That's the future we all should try to bring into fruition. Yep.